0: This is Global Humanist Shop Talk. I'm M.L. Clark. William Knox Darcy. You might remember the name from Episode 3 Why We Moil for Oil. He was the lucky fellow granted a concession to dig for oil in Persia, later known as Iran, where his staff discovered a major deposit in 1908 leading to the development of Anglo-Persian oil with the British company Burma Oil. Darcy didn't stop with Iran, though. He also acquired a concession to dig for oil in another part of the Ottoman Empire, which is now known as Iraq. Oil didn't come as easily here, but in 1912 Darcy still formed a new company called the Turkish Petroleum Company to pursue related ventures. TPC was made up of quite a few European backers, along with one local entrepreneur. But the Anglo-Persian oil company remained its largest single shareholder, to give you some idea of how incestuously interwoven all these oil companies truly were, and still are today. What was the point of creating TPC? Well, as with the wide range of oil companies across the US in the late 19th century, all of which seemed different on the surface. But which operated under the same Standard Oil Trust. The name of the game in other parts of the world was similar. It was all about securing concessions in different regions. But although I mentioned concessions in our last episode, we didn't do a deep dive into their actual meaning or implication. It's such a strange word, concession, because it has a flavor of defeat sewn into it. In general, to concede something is to agree to its loss, And that's precisely what quite a few nations did in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, especially to British and other Western powers. Now, we can certainly humor the idea that these were purely business transactions between companies, but that would be a fiction. The truth is that corporations carry the weight of their legal jurisdiction behind everything they do, and often state representatives from those legal jurisdictions, with all their military might and histories of local government infiltration, are breathing over the shoulder of national rulers during trade negotiations between state and private actors. And again, in this regard, not much has really changed for power brokers in modern states. In the 16th and 17th centuries, it was the Habsburgs and the Holy Roman Empire insinuating their family within Bohemian politics and in the governance of other European nations. With the Marshall Plan, it was the US creating counterpart funds that simultaneously gave and also directly controlled the distribution of European aid money after World War II, with a significant slice put aside for its own espionage operations on the continent. And with oil in the Middle East, it was this matter of concessions, legal documents that completely subverted any hope of coherent and meaningful sovereignty among the many nations native to these lands in the early 20th century. The way an oil concession worked, of course, meant that the local government was also supposed to reap some benefit from the arrangement, In general, the expectation was that it would keep a portion of any take the foreign company made from prospecting and mining on its land. In 1925, in Iraq, this process involved the development of a 75-year concession given to TPC with the promise that the Iraqi government would receive a royalty on every ton of oil extracted. 75 years. Not an uncommon time frame for concessions made by state governments to foreign oil corporations, but so ridiculously long, covering at least three generations, as to put to bed any hope of true self-representation for the local citizens that such an international deal ostensibly served. Nor has the practice really ended. Even today, we see similar in Canada as provincial citizens struggle to reclaim a measure of actual democracy amid trade relationships between provincial governments, the supposed stewards of our natural resources, and foreign corporations from, say, China, who are especially interested in buying up our water. In the US too, companies like Nestle and private prison corporations have done an excellent job locking state governments into contracts that prioritise corporate needs above those of everyday citizens. And all of this has been possible in part because the way we keep talking about nation-states and national identity in general keeps presuming some sort of natural divide between a country's economic enterprises and its idealized political form as a social contract primarily with its constituent members, its voting population. But when we look at histories of petro-nationalism across the last 160 years, that illusion falls clean away, as it should. Which is why today, we're looking at four countries touched by the petroleum industry – Iraq, Venezuela, Qatar, and Morocco. In these four stories, it might be easy to see the plight of other peoples, other struggling nations. But look a little closer, and you'll see that we're all enmeshed in similar Their weaknesses under petro-nationalism are our weaknesses under petro-nationalism, because this state of affairs affects us all, if only we're willing to reframe received wisdom about the social contracts under which we all live. After all, it's that mental flip That moment when we better understand how agency can be enhanced or lessened by our policies and cultures, which this humanist podcast always sets out to explore, one everyday object or concept at a time. You're listening to Global Humanist Shop Talk, and for six episodes, we're extracting a deeper understanding of contemporary global politics through a study of petro-nationalism, the formation, maintenance, and advancement of countries through the oil and gas industries they have created, traded in, and otherwise leveraged for international power, at cost to the humans in them all. Now, when it comes to Iraq, I should note that there are already a wealth of excellent analyses about the oil economy and foreign encroachment on the region. How could there not be when the U.S. has repeatedly waged long-standing and brutal wars in the region? It is not the purpose of this podcast to retread ground excellently explored, for example, by Brendan James and Noah Colwyn of the podcast Blowback, which in Season 1 expertly and with extensive research outlined the self-serving crime of the 2003 invasion of Iraq in which thousands of Iraqi citizens were killed under false pretenses that ultimately advanced US economic motives tied to petro-nationalism. Also, Venezuela is another hot topic with a wide range of excellent reporting, including a piece by NPR's throughline El Libertador that certainly informs some of my own analysis of the country's recent history. The aim with this episode isn't to replicate the wealth of work come before me, all I'm doing here is tying together these exceptional journalistic and academic labours in a way that illustrates the importance of thinking differently about our notion of the contemporary nation-state. To this end, the only further point I wish to make with respect to Iraq relates to that tense post-war period we discussed in episode 4. As I noted then, early in the Cold War, the US and Britain led a coup in Iran to unseat an elected politician, Mohammad Mossadegh, for the crime of advocating for economic sovereignty and national control over state resources, including petroleum deposits. In the process, the US and Britain succeeded in destabilizing Iran's political future for, well, forever by the looks of things under the current regime and its ongoing, brutal oppression of young protesters fighting for a better life. But Mossadegh's call for national empowerment still resonated with others in the region. And in Iraq, concessions like the 75-year arrangement with the TPC did not sit well with the Iraqi people. Local citizens wanted their land and resources back, and with Europe still relatively depleted in contrast to its pre World War II imperial might, the timing had never been better. Political fragility abounded though, so change wasn't easy. In the Suez Crisis of 1956, Iraq endured an economic crisis when Syria's resistance to Western powers impacted the Iraqi pipelines. This was part of Syria's own push for greater sovereign power, which it enacted by forming a political union with Egypt, called the United Arab Republic, in 1958. As with the Arab Spring in the 21st century, this kind of excitement in the region proved infectious. Soon after, it was Iraq's turn to shine. would Iraqi independence take? Well, that was the tricky bit. The leader of Iraq at the time was King Faisal II, who had gained his position at the age of three due to a family tragedy, and as such, relied on a prince regent to rule in his stead until he came of age. That prince regent, his uncle Abid Alilah, was strongly protected by the British government, and he protected their economic interests in Iraq in turn. This meant that the prince regent made decisions which would later not bode well for Faisal. The regent developed, and Faisal later confirmed, both the Anglo-Iraqi Treaty of 1948, which upheld an earlier status quo with Britain, and also the Baghdad Pact of 1955, which yoked Iraq into the West's idea of a fierce Cold War with the Soviets, with all the subordination of Middle Eastern economic interests to Western military ambitions that this concept entailed. It was no wonder then that local Iraqi citizens reacted to both these measures with significant public protest. And even though King Faisal tried to appease nationalist movements when Iraq and Jordan formed their own alliance in 1958, in the wake of Syria and Egypt's inspiring UAR, Faisal's complicity with British affairs in the past remained his undoing, as far as public approval went. In July of 1958, the Royal Iraqi Army launched a coup And the king and his family were executed. One very strong reason for this coup was a desire to reclaim Iraq's oil assets for Iraq, but this wasn't an easy transition because built into companies like the TPC, which had been renamed the Iraq Petroleum Company or IPC in 1929, was also a wealth of industry knowledge which couldn't be replaced overnight. So instead of taking over the company immediately, the new government instead leveraged a far larger take from the IPC for the next few years while it set up a parallel company, the Iraq National Oil Company, which by 1961 was allowed to expropriate 95% of the IPC's yield until the government took over and nationalized the IPC directly in 1970. And when I say that the government took over and nationalized the IPC in the 1970s, I really mean that Saddam Hussein, not yet the country's leader, but a rising star because of his work with the oil industry, nationalized the IPC. For better and for worse, because he certainly leveraged his position to advance distinct ethnic interests that would lead to the oppression of other Iraqi peoples, Hussein ushered in a new era for Iraq, with an economy suddenly boosted by the country having more access to the profits. Of its own petroleum resources. And that's where we'll leave Iraq because it's important to juxtapose a few different sudden rises in national fortune before we leap to any bigger conclusions about their overall impact and what they tell us about petro nationalism writ large. So let's pop over next to Venezuela which we last referenced in relation to the US trying to develop alternative energy pathways to Europe in the middle of the Suez Crisis. Venezuela has the world's largest proven oil reserves, and this has been nothing if not a mixed blessing, often leading to incredible local hardship and sorrow, as Venezuelan governments generally prioritized a desire to profit from the world's petroleum market over using said profits to benefit their own people. And I wish that were hyperbole, but Venezuela has had a very hard century, with any periods of affluence from its oil assets tied directly to the problems that also created its many periods of extreme deprivation. Venezuela's early concessions were to a different group of European corporations and states, but Britain still had a significant foothold through a company later acquired by Shell. Venezuela's first major oil well came about in 1914, but it wasn't until 1922 that the region became of heightened interest to the world. By the end of that decade, Venezuela was the world's leading exporter, a situation that should have left its citizens reaping the benefits, but which instead found the region so overly invested in the energy market that its agricultural sector was neglected to the point of immense local disease and suffering over the next three decades. Here we have a different situation than in the Middle East. In 1943, the Venezuelan government expressly passed a law that required 50% of oil profits from private companies to go to the state. Even as sitting officials aggressively pursued concessions with foreign oil companies to improve overall yield from the land, there was no real reason except for greed among officials this huge state profit not to translate into an improved quality of life for all Venezuelans. Corruption, unfortunately, is a fairly universal human complaint. But the rising mid-century fortune of Middle Eastern countries finally mitigated a working relationship that for decades had allowed Venezuelan government to prioritize its connection to foreign power brokers over its own citizens. Changes needed to be made so that the country was no longer as reliant on the whims of external power brokers. Even then, though, change came slowly and ultimately relied on a Middle Eastern oil crisis, the 1973 oil embargo that saw Venezuelan oil profits surge to offset export bans elsewhere in order to build critical political momentum for change. In the end, Venezuela only nationalized its oil industry in 1976, and then because the profit boom during the 1973 crisis had made it overconfident about just how much oil wealth would keep on pouring in. Unlike Iraq, when it nationalized though, Venezuela didn't first create counterpart companies. Existing concessions were simply adopted directly as national enterprises, and that too did not bode well in the near future when international oil profits again dropped off. Venezuela had failed to learn from its earlier periods of suffering, or perhaps it might be kinder to say that its earlier periods of suffering had normalized suffering as part of the petroleum profit equation in that region. Either way, in the 1980s, when other oil-rich countries kept breaking from production quotas, flooding the market with petroleum products, Venezuela's earnings tanked, and its over-reliance on oil for wealth sent the region into yet another era of deep poverty, attrition, and disease. At the time, too, Venezuela's national oil company, PDVSA, managed to become incredibly inefficient, if not outright corrupt. It wasn't growing the same way that international corporations had been. It was simply eating up whatever profits its existing infrastructure sustained. In the late 1990s, only 36 percent of its profit, profit for an ostensibly state-run corporation, actually went to the state. There's there's something about land ownership that's different than like owning a factory. And I can't quite put my finger on that, but but uh, if you own land, and we get a, a good picture of what happens, like in Central America and in other places of the world, you own land, you own a lot of things. More power, the ownership of land than owning a business or a factory, it seems. And so that everything in those communities are owned and controlled. It was under these painful circumstances that Hugo Chavez, a man who had risen to fame not just from attempting a coup that failed, but also from taking personal responsibility for the failure of this coup, a move that marked him as a man of integrity in the eyes of many suffering Venezuelans became president. In that role, he didn't exactly fix the PDVSA, which had allowed the oil industry in Venezuela to stagnate for years, but he did free up more funds from them and made grand claims about using this money to support social welfare projects. This was supposedly Venezuela's grand turn to communism but what it amounted to was the creation of redundant organizations that rather than fixing key social welfare issues became new money sinks for corrupt members of government. The only factor in Chávez's favor during this period was the fact that Venezuelan oil profits in general were still in an upswing, in part because the US war in Iraq had destabilized world markets, and in part because of Chávez's own work trying to rally other members of a key oil organization, OPEC, to collaborate better on price fixing to stave off another massive market collapse. Ultimately though, Chavez did not grow his national oil company and he did not do enough to diversify Venezuela's overall economy such that it would not be deeply affected by new shocks in global oil. He simply drew and drew and drew from the national oil industry's existing profit model to shore up authoritarian power and redirect the country's wealth through shell corporations, and his successor, Nicolás Maduro, would only build upon that corrupt enterprise while also overseeing the country in the middle of a much less lucrative global oil economy. Hyperinflation and extreme deprivation would ensue for the remaining Venezuelan people, many of whom have had to flee. The current minimum monthly salary for a Venezuelan citizen, the rightful heir to one of the world's most impressive petroleum reserves is a mere six U.S. dollars. Two final case studies round out our tour of petronationalism, Qatar and Morocco. Qatar is a fairly new arrival as an international power, but what makes it especially striking is that it gained its acclaim after many other Arab nations had emerged as sovereign powers, more or less shaking off their Western imperialist histories, and as such, Qatar benefited from the ordeals the rest had already undergone. Qatar's history of transformation is most similar to Saudi Arabia, in that both their peoples were fairly humbly engaged in nomadic living arrangements and tribal practices before making it big with fossil fuels. But while Saudi Arabia went through long periods of concessionary arrangements, Qatar's first oil find in 1940 was not significant enough to attract major interest, especially in the middle of World War II. It was only really in 1971 when its immense natural gas reserves were discovered, that this tiny country of some 300,000 suddenly became of great importance. Also, because of its small population, Qatar was in a unique position. It drew from the region's wealth of experiences with international power brokerage to create joint ventures with foreign companies and easily uplifted its tiny citizenry with the profits of entry into the global market. This also allowed the country to gain outsized prominence on the world stage because there is simply far too much petroleum profit for its few citizens not to spend on luxury and prestige events, like the 2022 FIFA World Cup. This in turn has allowed Qatar to get away with extreme human rights abuses, especially for the 90% non-citizen workers who have been critical to building up local industry in so short a time. Qatar has never needed to modernize its approach to human rights concerns because its people gained enough wealth to buy the world's agreement to look away. So long as the world relies on fossil fuels, there will be very little leverage that other countries can use to nudge states like Qatar toward better, more humane action. Which brings us lastly to Morocco, which is not yet a petroleum superpower. And that's fascinating unto itself, because research into its potential fossil fuels began in the 1930s and were quite promising. And yet since that point, everything has been fairly tentative in the region, with international companies paying high rates for the right to explore its oil and gas reserves, hoping for the next big yield. These major players include Europa Oil & Gas, out of London, England, and Qatar Petroleum International, out of Doha. But of deepest relevance to our topic is the way the world has treated even the possibility of Morocco one day making it big in hydrocarbons. The thrilling way global energy and financial sectors talk about Morocco's possible future as a crude oil producer, even though, as with Nigeria, the continent's leading oil producer, such an industry is also predicted to come at serious cost to local stability. This is in part because Morocco, like Nigeria, does not have the local infrastructure necessary to develop more refined products from raw petroleum reserves, meaning that in order for the country to benefit at all from its oil futures, it would have to tie its economy into the slings and arrows of neighboring economies through foreign exchange arrangements that would provide an export market for its new hydrocarbon yields. If ever those yields ever meaningfully show up at all. In other words, Morocco illustrates the absolute precarity that can still befall a country if it ever shifts from a passive player in the petroleum industry to an active producer of petroleum products. With Iraq, as with so many other Middle Eastern countries, the transition to petronationalism was thrust upon it by Western interests looking to expand their own empires. And it took much of the 20th century for Arab states to wrest back control from ideological power plays that gave them supporting roles in a grand superficial saga of western capitalism versus eastern communism. As for Venezuela, the country's leadership threw itself wholeheartedly into petro-nationalism's fair-weather embrace and built a national identity over the past century that normalized putting citizen well-being second to government relationships with international oil in pursuit of mutually self-serving profit. Qatar, in contrast, was fortunate to have happened upon its hydrocarbon wealth much later in the 20th century when it could draw upon the hard-won victories of its Middle Eastern neighbors and while it had so few actual human beings to protect in the process of growing its industrial stake and national power. Which brings us back in many ways to the problem with Engels' idea of the modern state as a machine of national capitalism, which we explored in episode 4. Engels was fairly certain that this capitalist machine had a breaking point, but the 20th and early 21st centuries have more than illustrated that this machine has a life of its own. And as Qatar especially demonstrates, a life that flourishes best when it has as few actual human beings to serve as possible. Petronationalism, in other words, is an economic arrangement that has shaped the reality of our nation-states, even as civic ideas about the nation continue to imagine a much more collaborative and even democratic set of social contracts for us. And yet, it's only been with us for as long as this body of natural resources has been allowed to guide our political futures. A mere 160 years, give or take. Granted, the bigger mess of for-profit governance has been with us for far longer, with the Holy Roman Empire and colonial missions long before corporations in their contemporary forms, but that doesn't mean it's impossible to imagine better futures. It just means that we have to think more carefully about all the terms and concepts we keep taking for granted when talking about the future of the nation-state, which is exactly what we'll be doing in episode 6. I hope you'll follow along. This has been Global Humanist Shop Talk with ML Clark. Maurizio Ferraz is my one-man dream team of an audio production specialist. Studio space and resources were provided by Agencia El Grifo and all further credits for cited and referenced content can be found in attached episode notes. All of this would not have been possible without my patrons, the vast majority of whom support me through Patreon. You can also follow my work at Better Worlds Theory, a weekly newsletter at mlclark.substack.com. None of us excels without the support of a community, and I am deeply thankful to have found mine. Be well, be kind, and seek justice where you can.